And that is how the Bible talks about our heart. It's what gets you out of the bed, your bed in the morning and what we dream about as we drift off to sleep. It's the, the motivation headquarters. In other words, heart, our, our heart, biblically speaking, uh, is not part of who we are. It is the center of who we are. Our, our heart is what defines and directs us. And so here's the question, how's your heart this morning? Like right now, understanding that that is what your heart is, how is your heart doing? Jesus tells us that sometimes the best way to find out what's going on in your heart is through how we live our lives, the decisions that we make, the way that we speak. In Luke, Jesus tells us this specifically, that everything, our, all of our actions, all of our speech flows out from our heart. And so if our heart is the decision-making engine of our life, the spring from which our, our speech flows, my question for you is, what is the fuel that fuels the engine that you have that makes the decisions in your life? What is it that feeds the spring out of which flows your speech? What is the driving force, if you like, that turns the gears that helps you to have the will to do something, that, that de determines the decisions that you make, that animates the words that you speak? For me, when I think about the fuel that fuels my decision-making engine in my life, that feeds the spring from which I speak, I, I think sometimes that fuel is impatience, right? That is the thing that, that seems to drive my heart. I make decisions based on being impatient. I sometimes speak to other people out of in frustration because of my impatience. I easily telegraph impatience. So the fuel that seems to drive my heart is impatience. Other times, I think it's self-protection. Uh, to be honest, I'm way more uh, insecure than you would probably think I am, and so sometimes I, I, I get into a self-protection mode where I make decisions or say things in order to protect myself from something that may cause me shame. So how about you? Have you ever considered that? What is the fuel that drives the decision-making in your life, that feeds the spring, the fountain from which your mouth speaks. How's your heart? It's interesting, when you go through the gospel accounts in the Bible, there's only one time in the entire Bible that Jesus describes his heart to us. And here's that one verse. It's in Matthew 11. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I like what the writer Dane Ortland says. He writes, In that one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Now, what's interesting about this short little phrase from Jesus is that this word gentle can actually be translated gentle or it can be translated as lowly or humble. And this word lowly can be translated lowly or it can be translated humble or gentle. 
There's a way in which Jesus could be saying, I am gentle and humble in heart. He could also be saying, I am gentle and gentle in heart. But I particularly like how the ESV translation renders it, which is what you have in your worship guide. It translates it, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So what does it mean to be gentle, to be lowly, to be humble? Well, to be lowly is to bring yourself low. To, to be humble is to rank yourself underneath other people. And the spirit of gentleness is the thing that connects those two. You have to be gentle and lowly to be, to be humble. And so what Jesus is saying is the core of my being, the core of my decision-making engine of my life, the fountain, the spring from which I speak, Jesus says, is gentleness. We're almost at the end of our series, going through the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, We've got like one more uh, week to go uh, after this one. And the fruit of the Spirit is the description of what God does inside of a Christian as he transforms us into the likeness of his Son. And so if Jesus is saying, I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, then one of the things that God does inside of us is he transforms us into becoming more gentle people. So it's no surprise that one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Because one of the, th- the evidences that God is transforming us from the inside out is that we become more gentle people. Now when I began uh, looking at this in Scripture, because gentleness is not something we, we, we think about a lot. I was stunned at the, the number of verses in the Bible that actually mention this idea. In fact, what I want to do is I want you to kind of be stunned along with me. So I'm going to read uh, a whole bunch of verses, uh, and I want you to listen to this and, and to, to, to listen to what this is saying to us about gentleness in our life. And, and, and this is all from the, the, the New Testament. Let's start in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Galatians uh, Galatians 6 1. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Uh, Titus, Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to, of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be kind, and to show gentleness. Toward all people. James, James 3, uh, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the gentleness of wisdom. And then just a few verses later. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Um, uh, one, 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 one Peter, one Peter three. It, it, 
But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then finally, 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to everyone, able to teach teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. I was just fascinated. I was reading through all of, of these, preparing for this message, that no matter what we're commanded to do, whether we're commanded to confront someone because of their sin, we're to do it, we're to do that in gentleness. If someone is trapped in sin and we're to help them, we're to do that in gentleness. When we give an answer for why we have the hope that we have, we do that in gentleness. As we grow in wisdom, one of the first things that happens to us is we become more gentle in how we posture ourselves towards other people. And I don't know about you, but this is a really tall order for me. I've kind of felt, found that, that to be the case for, through this whole fruit of the, the Spirit thing. Like, I was reflecting on why is everything in the fruit of the Spirit, it seems completely contrary to me. I mean, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And I was like, and next week is self-control, by the way. But I'm like, why, why is this so hard? And what is more, why do I not even particularly like the idea of being gentle? In fact, I'm not alone in this. In the Greek and Roman world, the world into which Paul was writing this letter to the Christians in Galatia, gentleness and humility were not highly valued at all. They were emphatically not numbered among the heroic virtues. Now, in that culture, you know, real men were neither gentle nor humble. Real men, they were strong and powerful and dominant Real men were winners, and they would let you know about it. The bo- you would be boasting about your superiority. That, was, that, was re- that wasn't regarded as being in bad taste in the way that it is in modern uh, polite society. It was expected. That was the surrounding culture of Paul's day. And even today, that kind of ideal still dominates most popular culture in, in Hollywood movies with the kind of, you know, the all-conquering, you know, usually violent good guy or the, the mythical superheroes. And, and subtly and dangerously, our culture and its heroes shape our thinking and attitudes, and we come to see gentleness as, as just a way to get trampled on. Gentleness seems so passive and and we don't want to be passive, we want to be active. We don't, we don't like the passive nature of this, and yet no one would accuse Jesus of being passive. I mean, Jesus said incredibly strong things. He, he stood up against injustice. He, he unwaveringly called sin, sin. But he did it all with gentleness in his tank. Humbling himself. Ranking himself low. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go to the text where Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly, and we'll actually see him do it. In, in Matthew eleven 27, we'll start there. 
It says, all things, Jesus said, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, this is a really powerful verse, and it tells us a lot about who Jesus is. So let's kind of just go through a few things. He mentions that he's the Son of God the Father, right? And he mentions that his Father has handed over to him and trusted to him, what? All things. In other words, Jesus has been placed in authority, he has been put in charge, and he has been given all power over everything in the universe. He has been given so, so much authority and power that no one can even come to the Father unless Jesus decides that they get to know the Father. Now imagine for a second that you had that level of power and authority. What would you do with it? Our culture talks a lot about power dynamics and power abuse right now, which is appropriate because there is in our world so many examples of abusive leaders and those who've leveraged their uh, powers in, in inappropriate ways to push people down, to climb over them to get to the top. But that's not how Jesus rolls. Think about it. Jesus could have done anything he wanted with his power. He could have said, since no one gets to know God the Father except through me, you're stuck. I'm sorry, you don't get to know God. I hold all the cars, tough luck for you, right? Jesus could have said, he could have done what other religions do, which is to say, here's a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through to be made right with me. He could have said, here are all the things you have to know. That you have to perfectly memorize this thing and know this mantra and, and behave in this way in order to get in sync with the universe. But Jesus does something radically different than all of that. With all of the power of introduction to God the Father, he offers an invitation. And he offers this invitation, not to the powerful and well-connected people, to the rich and to the famous, the people who think they've got their, their act together. This is the invitation Jesus offers in the very next verse. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see who, who Jesus invites? He invites all who labor. In other words, he invites the weary. The, the weary are those who, who think, I just can't do this anymore. He invites the heavy laden. He invites the burden. Those are people to which the weight of this world has just become too much. And do you see what he, what he offers them? rest. You know, over the last few years, I've talked to a lot more people that are weary and burdened. It seems people can't do it anymore. People can't carry the weight anymore. Some people have been beaten down by the pandemic, or maybe they've been beaten down by relationships, maybe relationships that used to be great. They, they thought they were awesome, and now they're just barely amicable or, 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 or even toxic. And, and for way too many people, relationships and interests that used to be life-giving to them, people in their lives that used to just feed into them, now have become life-sucking. And to be honest, one of the biggest places that 
has happened is in the church of Jesus Christ. I seem to know an increasing number of people who still identify as followers of Jesus in some way, but they've given up on the church. They're tired of it. And you know what? To some degree, I get it. And then on the flip side, I read more and more and more articles talking about how a lot of pastors of churches are weary and worn out. And they have nothing left in their tank to give to the congregations that are weary and worn out. And in all my years of ministry, I've never seen nor encountered so many weary people in the church, around the church, leaving the church. And if that's you this morning... If you are weary and you are burdened today, listen to Jesus. He says to you, come to me, you who are weary and are burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, to some degree... I can understand why people have given up the, on the church in frustration. You know, we are, we are witnessing a whole generation who've grown up in the church, who've maybe even um, been super involved in the church, but now they, they've given up on it and are leaving in droves. And, and, and maybe they even still consider that in some way they, they, they follow Jesus, but they're trying to figure the whole thing out. And in many cases... You know, I, I do kind of get where they're coming from. I share some of the frustrations regarding the church. By the way, and not this church in particular, I'm talking the larger church in general, that seemingly has far too often become embroiled in either scandal or partisan politics. Or, or, or you think of the way Christians in our cults are respond to criticism or challenges or, or mockery, and you wouldn't necessarily put gentleness and respect high up on the list of the way that, that, that the church speaks and behaves. And I, too, can get pretty discouraged when I look at the state of the church today in our Western context. But despite all of it, if you ask me why I am still committed to the church, why I'm still a, a pastor... After, after all these years, my answer would be because I want people to know the real Jesus. I want them to encounter the Jesus who says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I tell you, every time I hear of someone who says, You know, I'm not sure what I believe anymore, and maybe they even use that D word these days, deconstructing. I, deconstruction. I'm deconstructing my faith. You know what I, I kind of think? Good. Because there are many extra biblical trappings that we have thrown onto this faith thing. So let's get rid of those. Let's deconstruct the, the, the faith and see what Scripture really has to say. See who Jesus really is. And let's rebuild something that is, that is Jesus, that actually is what Jesus has called us to be. Don't give up on Jesus just because Christians have burned you. Don't give up on the church just because the church has failed you. Because Christians will, 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 will burden you and... and and, and, and the church will fail you, but not Jesus. He won't. What, what Jesus is offering is, is rest for your soul. This doesn't put a heavy burden on your back. And anyone who puts a heavy burden on your back in the name of Jesus is missing the point. 
Again, Dane Ortland, you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I will give you rest. His rest is gift, not transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside your control, Jesus' desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own. And notice what Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, that's got a couple of, of different meanings. The first idea of a yoke is, I mean, we have probably all are familiar with the concept of a, a yoke, the idea that you have two oxen and you've got that big wooden thing between them as they're, as they're plowing a field, right? That's a yoke. And, 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 and that kind of yoke basically exists so that the stronger ox can pull along the weaker ox, and he is able to do a lot more than he could do without the stronger ox. That's the first imagery that Jesus is giving us. The second is rabbis of this day would call their teaching a yoke. And so it was their yoke that they would place on people. So if you wanted to follow a, a rabbi, you wanted to, to follow a teacher, you would do all the things that he told you to do. And that was his yoke that he placed on you. And Jesus is saying, he's like, my yoke, the teaching that I place on you, it's easy. It's light. And, and I am the stronger oxen that will help you plow this field. I will give you rest. Come to me. Those of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. My teaching, Jesus says, will not wear you out. Listen, if Christianity feels like a burden to you, Either you misunderstand it or someone has taught you something that isn't the way of Jesus. So how do we learn from him? Well, this is beautiful. Jesus wants you to take his easy and light burden, his offer of rest, and offer it to others. And we do this by being the same as Jesus, by being gentle, lowly, humble at heart, so that we can tell people about a Jesus that has given us rest. We make decisions in our life. We do so ranking ourselves underneath others. Why? So that we can stand up and pick up their burden with them. Now you'll notice if you're following along in Matthew's account, if you have your Bibles, that if you're reading the gospel account, uh, he makes a chapter change here. And, and so when people make a chapter change, uh, because one day some guy decided to put chapter and verses in here to make it easier for us, we think, oh, it's a, it's a whole new section. I, 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 I don't need to read this bit. But I think it's significant that this is what happens next. Look at, look at the narrative beginning at Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields of the, on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, what are they talking about? Well, part of the Mosaic law was something called Sabbath keeping. And Sabbath means rest. And part of keeping the Sabbath was that you work and you grind for six days, and then you take a day and you don't. You rest. That was the idea of, of the Sabbath. Grind for six days, rest for one day. That's the Sabbath idea. And so what the Pharisees have, had, had done here is that they, they had added law and burden on top of, of, of something that was supposed to be restful. And one of the laws and burdens they added was they said that you couldn't 
walk through a field and just pluck a piece of wheat off of a stalk and pop it in your mouth because that's work. They, they basically said that when you, when you, when you grab the stalk of wheat, that was, you know, harvesting, right? And then when you did this with your hands to separate the wheat, it, that was winnowing. And then when you, you know, would you know, blow away the chaff so that you could eat the wheat, that was threshing, right? And so you do all of these things, you, you throw the wheat in your mouth, and they're like, oh, no, 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 you're working. Come on. But isn't that what the world does to us? Isn't that what we do to ourselves and to other people? We, we constantly make everything into, into law. We constantly make everything into burden. We nitpick and hold people to ridiculous standards, and we make assumptions about people's motives, and we judge them based on the most insignificant little actions in their life. And this is the case in point. The Sabbath was supposed to be about rest. What is it that Jesus just told these guys, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees, and this is great. He said to them, have you not read that David did what, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is beautiful. These religious guys had, had made the principle of Sabbath, the idea of rest, into a burden. And Jesus destroys their argument just with two examples. First, he's like, hey guys, haven't you read about King David? Remember when he went into the temple and he wasn't supposed to eat the bread, but he ate the bread? It was okay. And, and how about the, the priest, who, because their, their very job was to work on the Sabbath? You know, I'm working today, right? And, and it's okay. And Jesus said, what you guys are missing is a couple of things. First of all, there's something much bigger than the temple right here. He was talking, of course, about himself. And he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of rest. And there's that little phrase in the middle there that I love. He, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's actually a quote from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And Hosea, in partic that particular passage, was, was, was talking about how we tend to judge people on outward stuff. And, and whether or not we're pleasing God in, in outward activities, but what God is most interested in is our hearts. He wants to have our hearts. He wants our hearts to be merciful, like His. Gentle, like His. And then Jesus doubles down, it says, and He went on from there and entered the, their, their synagogue. Okay, so Jesus is walking into their turf. It's the Sabbath. He's walking into their turf, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So Jesus enters into their business. He gets into their synagogue and went on the to the turf of the religious leaders, and he's basically daring them, right? And they, and they took the bait. They, they, they had heard that Jesus healed people, so they're like, do you think it's okay to heal on the Sabbath? Hey, look, there's a guy who needs to be healed on the Sabbath, 
right? They're like, they're like daring Jesus. And he replies to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to kill him, which they did. Because Jesus humbled himself so far. He was so lowly and gentle that he went to the cross to bear their sins to bear our sins. On that cross, Jesus declared to telestai, which means it is finished. I did it all. I handled it all. That was the state of Jesus' heart. At the beginning, I asked you guys to, to consider your own heart. I'm going to ask you again, how's your heart doing? A lot of times you can tell how your heart is doing by the decisions you're making or who you're thinking about when you're making those decisions. You can tell a lot about your, uh, how your heart is doing by the words that come out of your mouth. Or as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus showed us in word and deed that his heart was gentle and lowly. He had and has all authority, and yet he humbled himself and made himself low. Because from that spot of being low, he can look into the eyes of those who are weary and burdened, and he could offer them rest. So where does this kind of gentleness come from for us? Well, yeah, we might reply, well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, it's the character of Jesus living within us, and it is that. But I think that in practical, day-to-day -day terms, the, deep, the deepest root of this kind of gentleness in our lives is genuine humility. And by humility, I mean the deep awareness that I'm just a human who is as flawed and tempted as anyone else, and that I really have no reason to feel superior or get aggressive when other people show their flaws and failings, not if I, I truly know my own heart. And so, for instance, when someone else makes a mistake or drops something or loses the keys or forgets to, to do what they promised to do or just generally messes things up, the, the things that happen to all of us at some point in our life, at that moment, I try not to, I don't lose my temper and rage at them, shouting angry words of accusation or blame. No, I control that instinctive response because I remind myself that, it could just as easily have been me making those mistakes. And if it had been me, how would I want others to respond to my foolishness and weakness and mistake? You see, humility comes a lot easier when you really know yourself, when you know the, the weak and flawed person who is living inside the shell that you have on the outside. And then out of that deep well of self-knowledge and gratitude for the grace of God that, has been, that we have received, that we have been rescued from our sin and our own failure, when we are aware of that, then we can live in a place of humility before God and gentleness towards others. In other words, if God has been gentle and gracious to me, and if I would like other people to be gentle and gracious with me when I mess up, then let me pray 
to be like that toward them. In other words, as a forgiven sinner myself, let me welcome others into the fellowship of the forgiven. Let the, the, the gentle fruit of the Spirit ripen in my life and in my relationships. And as we close this morning, I want to, I want to read what the Apostle Paul wrote and just let it soak in. Um, we've already heard a portion of these words uh, this morning already in our service. Uh, Paul wrote these words. He said, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself by going to the cross for our sins, and God exalted him. And Jesus now, what does he do? He exalts us with him so that we can then follow his example and lower ourselves with an attitude of gentleness and humility so that we can draw people in to meet Jesus. What kind of people? People like us who are weary and burdened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are weary and that we are burdened. In this last several years, there's not one of us that hasn't felt a little bit like we've been pushed through a meat grinder, and, and we're at different places in this, and so we pray that, that you would restore our souls. We come to you today, and we take your yoke on us. And in that remarkable moment when your yoke is placed on us, instead of feeling more burdened, we feel more free. Thank you that, that Jesus' burden is easy and light. And we pray that you would transform us into gentle people, not because we have this burden to be gentle, but, but because you've been so gentle to us. Because you've cared for us, we can now turn around and care for others. And so we pray that, that, that you would transform us from the inside out. We pray that you would make this a community in our community where it is, is safe for people to be weary and burdened. We pray that this would be a community where it would be a safe uh, for people to feel broken. We pray that we don't ever become a community that demands perfection out of our people, for, but, but, but points to the perfect Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And we pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. Amen.